So how many of you have ever had the unfortunate experience of driving down the road and you get a flat tire or maybe a complete blowout? It's a, a terrible time. It's, it's, you know, get your adrenaline pumping. It really uh, just kind of wakes you up. And maybe you've been driving down the highway and out of nowhere, your tire blows and you find yourself stranded on the side of the road. I don't know why, but this is something that just constantly fear grips me on this. I'm, I'm paranoid, I guess, of having a tire blowout on the side of the road. And so one of the things that I do habitually is I am a compulsive tire pressure checker. I'm a compulsive tire pressure checker. I actually enjoy checking the tire pressure on our cars and making sure that they have just the right PSI in order to try to prevent some kind of blowout on the side of the road. I have a, even a, a compact, portable air compressor that I take with me. It's very convenient. You just set the, the dial to the exact PSI you need. You hook it up, and voila, there you go. You have the exact air pressure that you need. I love doing it. I just, I, I get, I, it's fun for me to put air in the, the car tires. I, I really don't know why. But if it's important for us to check the air pressure on our car, it's all the more important for us to monitor the pressure in our spiritual lives. As believers, we need to perform regular spiritual life pressure checks in order to make sure that we're not going to have a spiritual blowout. The great Howard Hendricks, professor at Dallas Seminary, used to say, there is no such thing as a spiritual blowout. It all starts with a small leak. There's no such thing as a spiritual blowout. It all starts with a small leak. And I can tell you in my years as a pastor, as I've met with people, I can affirm that that statement is indeed true. In other words, a spiritual blowout doesn't just randomly happen, but there are warning signs along the way. In my years of pastoral ministry, and I know I'm still pretty young, but in the 12 years of being a pastor, I can tell you I've never met with somebody who said they just randomly woke up one day and said, you know, today's a great day for me to have an affair. I've never met anybody who woke up and just randomly said one day, you know, today I think I'm going to start embezzling money from my company. I've never met anybody who said, you know, today is a great day to become an alcoholic. There's no such thing as a spiritual blowout. It all starts with a small leak, small decisions, small compromises that we make in our journey along the way. In our passage this morning in Mark chapter 14, we're going to kick the tires of our own spiritual life and check the pressure, check the health of our own walk and journey with Jesus. And we're going to use this passage in Mark chapter 14 where we see some warning signs in the life of the disciples that lead toward a spiritual blowout. You can grab your bulletin and grab your outline. You can see that we're going to take a look at a couple things this morning. First, we're going to see the prediction of spiritual blowout. Jesus predicts exactly what's going to take place in our passage this morning in the life of his disciples. 
But then number two in your outline, we're going to see the picture of spiritual blowout in this downward spiral. It begins with unfaithfulness in devotion. That then leads to a cowardly desertion among the disciples. And finally, specifically in the life of the Apostle Peter, we're going to see outright denial in this picture of spiritual blowout. Again, grab your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 14. Let's look first at number one on your outline, the prediction of spiritual blowout. Mark chapter 14, let's look first, picking up where we left off last week, verse 26 of Mark chapter 14. After singing a hymn, they, Jesus and his disciples, went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So remember last week we saw Jesus there in the upper room. He shares this Passover meal with his disciples. And then at the end of that Passover meal, verse 26 tells us, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they headed east, east of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And there in or around the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives this prediction of spiritual blowout there in verse 27. He says to them, to his disciples, notice you will all fall away. You will all fall away, all of you. The word for fall away Here's the Greek word skandalizo. We get the English word scandal from it. All the disciples, Jesus says, will be scandalized. They will fall away. They'll have a spiritual failure, a spiritual blowout in their journey of following Jesus. And as sad as this is, I do want you to notice verse 28. There's a hint of hope. After telling his disciples that they will all fall away, he says in verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Notice just the hint of hope here that we see. Jesus says, you will all fall away, you will all be scandalized, but after I am raised, after the resurrection, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, and there is where restoration will take place. So Jesus gives this prediction of spiritual blowout, but then notice Peter has a prediction of his own, verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Peter, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. 
So Jesus gives this prediction that all of his disciples will fall away. But Peter gives a prediction of his own. Peter says, there's no way that this is going to happen. Not me. Everybody else may fall away, Lord, but I will never deny you. Jesus then tells Peter, not only will you deny me once, but you will deny me three times. So we have Jesus' prediction. We have Peter's prediction. Let's see see how this turns out and who's right. Of course, Jesus is, but let's take a look. Number two on your outline now, we see the picture of spiritual blowout. First, unfaithfulness in devotion. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 32. John Mark tells us, they came to a place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So here John, Mark's, John Mark begins to set the scene and the context for what we'll see here in a minute, and that is the unfaithfulness and devotion among the disciples. But he tells us the story there. Again, they're in the area of the Mount of Olives. And in verse 32, we're told that they came to a place called Gethsemane. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, by the way, means oil press. Keep that in mind. I'll talk about that more here in just a bit. But here on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane or the olive of the oil press, notice Jesus is distressed and troubled. His soul is in anguish. He knows what lies ahead of him, now just hours away. And so Jesus goes off to pray. Notice he takes along with him Peter, James, and John, and he tells them to keep watch. Keep watch. Be on the alert. But notice what happens in verse 37. He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So again, notice Jesus' soul is in distress, it's in turmoil, and he he asks his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to, to keep watch while he goes off to pray. And he comes back and he finds his disciples not keeping watch, but asleep. And keep in mind, just moments before that, Peter made this bold claim that although all the other disciples might fall away, he would not fall away, and yet now he can't even stay awake in Jesus' time of greatest need. Jesus comes back and he finds these three disciples sleeping. He wakes them up and tells them to keep watching, to pray themselves, verse 38. So then verse 39, he went away 
and prayed, saying the same words. And he came and found them again, sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Notice now three times Jesus tells his disciples to keep watching, be on the alert. He tells them to pray, and each time Jesus comes, he returns to his disciples, and each time he finds them sleeping. They were supposed to stay alert and praying, but here the picture of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, in the Garden of Gethsemane is unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness in the life of the disciples. They said that they would never fall away, and yet they can't even stay awake to pray with Jesus. By the way, there's a really interesting thing going on here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Gethsemane means olive press or oil press. Jesus is in the Garden of the Oil Press with his disciples. And in Israel during this time, there was a very specific way in which you extracted oil from olives. In the fall, during the harvest time, you would go out and you would gather the olives... And you would then begin to put a bunch of olives into these little sacks, or they look like kind of burlap sacks. And you would take these burlap-style sacks filled with olives, and you would take them over to a millstone. And you would use this millstone in order to crush the olives that began then to extract the oil from the olives. So you would crush the olives, it would begin to seep out the oil, and then you would take these baskets filled with the olive mash, and you would take them from the millstone over to the olive press, the oil press. You would take these baskets and you would stack them on top of one another, and then you would begin to press this olive mash in order to extract and collect the oil. And in Israel during these times, there were three presses of the oil press. You would press this olive mash three times to extract the oil. The first press of olives, you would collect the finest of the olive oil. The finest of the olive oil. This was even better than what we would call today extra virgin olive oil. This was the purest of the olive oil that you could possibly extract. And that olive oil, by the way, this purest of the olive oil, would be collected and it would be given over to the temple as a sacrifice to God. And the temple, uh, they would use that olive oil for anointing ceremonies and to burn the oil in the menorah there in the temple. So that's the first press of the olives. The second press, you would then again use the weight of these huge stones to press the olives yet again and collect the oil a second time. That second collection of oil, you would collect it and gather it, and that's the oil that people would use 
for food, for cooking, for daily use, things like medicine and cosmetics. It was a very, very good quality oil. And then you would take those olives and you would press them a third time. And the final press of the olives would produce an oil that you would collect and gather for oil lamps, common oil lamps. This was a low-grade olive oil. You couldn't eat it. It was used uh, just pretty much for, for oil lamps. But you would press olives three times under the immense weight of stones. And here in the garden of the oil press, Jesus slips off to pray three times feeling the immense pressure and weight of the sacrifice that he was about to make for you and for me. Jesus is feeling the weight, the pressure of what he was about to face. Meanwhile, his disciples are unfaithful in their devotion. And now we see their cowardly, and their desertion of him. Let's take a look. The second point under number two on your outline, cowardly desertion. The second picture of blowout sin in the life of the disciples. Mark chapter 14, let's look first at verse 43. Immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him, Judas, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they, those with the swords and the clubs, laid hands on him, and seized him. Now once again, John Mark is setting the context. He's painting the scene for us in our minds, ultimately leading to the second step in spiritual blowout in the life of the disciples. But here he sets the scene in the, the context of conflict. Because now Judas emerges on the scene and he had arranged a sign ahead of time with the armed guard, and he, he said, the one I kiss, he's the one to arrest. And so Judas approaches Jesus, he calls him rabbi or my teacher, and then he kisses Jesus. A kiss in this culture and context was a sign of friendship. But here it's spoiled by an act of betrayal. And in verse 47, we read that one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has, been, this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. Notice, by the way, this is the second time we read in our verses this morning that this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. The first one was in verse 27, as it is written. All of this, in other words, is taking place by the sovereign hand of God. It's ultimately 
part of God's plan to send his son to be betrayed, to lay down his life so that you and I can be forgiven. Again, we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that phrase, on his way, on his way, on his way. And now Jesus is finally on his way, moments away from his crucifixion and death. But in verses 47 through 49, we, we see the conflict. We see one man who's Peter, by the way, who draws his sword and he strikes the ear of the slave of the high priest. We know his name is called Malchus. But Jesus then asks those who are coming to arrest him why they didn't try to arrest him when they saw him every day in the temple, verse 49. We know from earlier verses that the reason they didn't is because ultimately they were afraid of a a riot. They were afraid of an uprising because of Jesus' popularity with the people. But all of this, again, is really setting the, the context, setting the scene, ultimately, for the second step in the spiritual blowout of the disciples, and that is their cowardly desertion. The major thing that I want you to see in these verses is that the disciples deserted him and fled into the night just as Jesus said they would. Notice verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51, a young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. The second step here in the spiritual blowout of the disciples is their cowardly desertion of Jesus during this time of conflict. Again, just as Jesus predicted, he said, all of you will fall away. And indeed, that's what we see here. The sheep were scattering just as Jesus said. By the way, there in verses 51 and 52, uh, people try to figure out all the time who the young man is who runs away naked. Bottom line is we don't know. Tradition says that it's probably John Mark himself, the one who wrote this gospel. But we don't know. The point of it all, though, is again that the sheep were scattering just as Jesus said. And this young man runs away naked, which is a sign of shame, and so exposes the disgrace of the disciples' desertion, cowardly desertion of Jesus during his time of need. But as you take a step back and and, and consider this point, what we see here is, ironically, the disciples, those who are supposed to be following Jesus, are here presented as fleeing from Jesus, And the motif of leaving everything behind in order to follow Jesus now becomes the disgrace of leaving him and betraying him. Here we move in this downward spiral from unfaithfulness and devotion now to cowardly desertion. But it gets worse. Let's take a look at 2C on your outline, the picture of blowout. Spiritual blowout, outright denial. Notice verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. It says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. 
Peter, verse 54, had followed Jesus, notice, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now here we see John Mark tells us the beginning of one of the six trials that Jesus will undergo on this night. When you put all the Gospels together, Jesus actually stands in six different trials. Three trials before the Romans and three trials before the Jews. But what John Mark here in Mark 14 focuses in on is what Peter sees. In the verses that follow, we see what takes place through the eyes of the Apostle Peter, who, notice again, is standing there at a distance. He's standing at a distance. Let's see what Peter sees. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So pause right here and again notice the the motive that's taking place in this sham of a trial. The chief priests and the whole council, they were trying to obtain a testimony against Jesus, and here we see their motive. They want to put him to death. The problem they run into is there's all kind of inconsistent testimony being lobbied against Jesus. And again, Peter, meanwhile, he's followed the Lord. He's there in the background. He's watching all of this from a distance. In verse 60, We read, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There's a couple things I want you to notice here. Don't let it escape your attention. Here Jesus is point blank asked, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah the Son of the Blessed One. And notice Jesus' clear reply there in verse 62. He says, I am. Clear affirmation that he is indeed the Christ. But then he adds to it, notice, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a clear statement of his deity claiming to be both Christ and God. And notice that's exactly how the high priest interprets what Jesus says, verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. 
The high priest understands that Jesus has just claimed not only to be the Messiah, but to be God himself. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And notice verse 64, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And all the while we're told in the other gospels that our Lord remained silent throughout this particular ordeal, submitting himself to the Father's will. And all of this, again, remember, we are seeing through the eyes of Peter. So as Peter watches his Lord beaten and mocked, what's Peter doing there in the background at a distance in the dark? Well, notice verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. Verse 71, but Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he began to weep. See, as Jesus was undergoing a trial, really six trials, Peter was undergoing a trial as well, a testing here in the courtyard, in the shadows from a distance, he had three opportunities to speak up for his Lord. But all three times, Peter denied he ever even knew who Jesus was. And verse 72 says, Peter began to weep. You may have noticed out in the commons on your way in that there's a, a painting that someone in our church did capturing the remorse, the weeping here of Peter. I've mentioned this, we did this uh, earlier in the Gospel of Mark. We have a relatively new ministry here at Grace called Grace Creatives, people who are more artistically inclined, and I've given them the challenge from time to time of artistically depicting some of what we're seeing here on Sunday mornings. And this picture captures the, the anguish of the soul that Peter felt, and if we're honest, you and I sometimes feel as well. There's a few things I want you to notice here in the passage that are captured here in this painting. First of all, I want you to notice the huge contrast being presented here between Jesus and Peter. Jesus here is boldly affirming his deity before the powerful courts 
And meanwhile, Peter is denying Jesus before a little girl twice. Second, during the third denial, Peter began to call down curses on himself, effectively saying, may God curse me if I am lying, if I'm lying, I don't know this man. The third thing I want you to notice here is that as he publicly denied his Lord for the third time, immediately a rooster crowed the second time, triggering in Peter's minds the words of Jesus before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Although Peter affirmed he would never forsake the Lord, here instead, as Jesus said, as Jesus predicted, Peter denied the one he loved. And we see this downward spiral of unfaithfulness and devotion, cowardly desertion, and now outright denial. This downward spiral of spiritual blowout in the disciples. The warning here at Mark chapter 14 for you and for me is that our best intentions, and the disciples had good intentions, but our best intentions cannot protect us in the time of severe pressure. Our best intentions cannot alone protect us during times of intense spiritual pressure. The disciples had great intentions, but again, notice the downward spiral here. They thought that they would never deny Jesus. But then there's unfaithfulness and devotion, cowardly desertion, and now outright denial. And for you and me, these dangers can be very real. We too often feel the immense pressure of living in a fallen world. But pressures don't change our priorities. Pressure reveals our true priorities. So the question of the text is, when the pressure of life hits us, how will we respond? What I want to offer to you in terms of application is to take these three negatives of unfaithfulness and devotion, cowardly desertion, outright denial, and to spin them positively. And to submit to you for your consideration three ways that we can kick the tires, so to speak, in our own spiritual life to do a pressure check in order to hopefully prevent a spiritual blowout from taking place in our own life. These are not guarantees of any kind, but I do believe that a disciple who regularly practices them will be much less likely to have a spiritual blowout in their life. So the opposite of unfaithfulness and devotion, we see positively in prayer. We see this here in the passage. Jesus goes off to pray. He asks his disciples to pray with him, but instead they demonstrate an unfaithfulness in their devotion. Well, positively, prayer and the word of God are great ways to be keeping watch spiritually in our own hearts and in our own lives. It's not easy, it's definitely hard, it's work to set aside intentional time and prayer and the study of the word of God, but prayer and time in the word of God will tune up our spiritual life, no doubt. Number two, the opposite of cowardly desertion is wholehearted commitment. 
Often in times of pressure, intense pressure in our lives, God sometimes allows things to take place in order to tune us up spiritually. I want you to notice, by the way, in the text, that when the guards came to arrest Jesus, their first instinct was to respond and fight physically, to rely on what they had physically, swords and the ability to fight. But when their physical weapons were removed, sadly, they fled to the hills instead. And for you and I, God often uses the difficult seasons of life to tune up our commitment to him, to learn new ways of relying on him, not our physical resources, but to spiritually rely on him and to realize that our spiritual needs are more important than any physical resources we have. Third, the opposite here of outright denial is confession, public confession. Peter, when asked if he knows Jesus three times, outright denied even knowing him. But positively for you and me, there's nothing like confessing Jesus before other people in order to tune up our spiritual lives. When you confess Jesus publicly, you see his power and grace in whole new ways. When you share the gospel, when you share stories of how God is working in your life and through you is a spiritual tune-up that he has given to us that we all need. So here are three positive ways to kick the tires and do a spiritual health assessment in our lives. And there on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider as you work back through this passage. But your one thing for this week is this. The major takeaway here from Mark chapter 14 is to honestly ask yourself, what is an area in your life that might have a small leak? And what tune-up or accountability can you put in place to prevent an all-out spiritual blowout. Listen, the truth is, we all fail in this. All of us can grow. But positively, from Mark chapter 14, what I want to leave you with is the good news that victory in the Christian life is possible. You don't have to settle for spiritual blowout. And even in our times of weakness, even when we can honestly relate to the disciples in their unfaithfulness, in their desertion, and even in their denial, the final thing I want to leave you with is another lesson we can learn from Peter. Peter's miserable failure here is a sharp warning to all of us as followers of Jesus. If Peter was susceptible to this kind of failure, then so are we. But the good news is that Peter is restored after such an egregious lapse. Notice again there verse 28 of chapter 14, but after I have been raised, because of the resurrection, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. The good news I want to leave you with this morning is that if Peter of all people is restored, then there's hope for you and me as well. We should be horrified by Peter's denials, 
but thrilled and comforted by Peter's restoration. This morning, I want to I ask you a question this morning. First and foremost, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you experienced the ultimate restoration between sinful human beings and a holy God? And if you're here this morning in person or watching online, and if you've, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity right where you are, right where you're seated, to put your faith in him. To know that Jesus, even knowing our sin, even knowing our betrayal, willingly laid down his life on the cross so that you and I can be forgiven, redeemed, restored, and made new. And if you don't know that forgiveness, I want to urge you to put your faith in him. And if you're here this morning and you do know Jesus as your Savior, and you can relate to the struggle, the spiritual blowout of the disciples here, if you feel unfaithful in your devotion, if you're honest and you've even felt that temptation to desert Jesus and pull away, and even this morning if you've outright denied him in your life, another piece of good news I have for you this morning is that once again Jesus forgives you. He loves you. He takes away all our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he desires a relationship, a fellowship, and faithfulness with you. Scripture tells us that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. But our challenge here from Mark chapter 14 is that from time to time, we need to kick the tires in our own spiritual life and do an honest assessment of how we're doing. So how are you doing? Let's recommit ourselves to faithfully following Jesus, even when we live in a world under pressure. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, we come to you this morning and we confess, first and foremost, our own unfaithfulness. Father, we confess that at times we, even in our walk with Jesus, we're guilty of being unfaithful in our devotion. We're guilty at times even of being cowardly and deserting him. We're guilty sometimes of even outright denying Jesus in our profession and even in how we live. And so, Father, we're grateful this morning that you forgive us that you love to forgive us, that you sent your son for that very purpose. And so, Father, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to live for him, that you would well up within us a devotion of prayer and time in your word. You would well up within us a deep commitment and a public confession that we would be disciples of Jesus who long for and look for opportunities to give people a reason for the hope that is within us. Father, thank you that even when we're afraid, even when we're cowardly, even when we fail, you love us. Father, help us by the power of your spirit to live for you as we follow Jesus, and we ask this in his name. Amen.